0: Hello there, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of all things. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on things you want to hear. Enjoy the show. So we are continuing with our Reflections on Ministerial Vocation based off of Eugene Peterson's Under the Unpredictable Plant. And um, let me share a quick fun story about Peterson. Um, um, I did my Master of Divinity at Regent College, where he taught as a professor. And the story goes that um, the band U2 was touring in Vancouver, where uh, Regent College is located, Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I don't remember, was this the Elevation Tour or something like that? And while they were in the city of Vancouver, allegedly the lead singer Bono uh, puts on a cap um, and pulls it nice and low and, and walks right onto the campus of Regent College and right up to Eugene Peterson's office. Uh, Peterson was not present, and so Bono leaves a note on his door that says, "I love your writing. Would love to meet you someday." And um, this was shared allegedly at a at a at a faculty meeting at Regent College, and um, one of the other professors says, "Wait, wait. Let me get this straight. Bono comes to." Vancouver, Canada, and of all the people in this city that he wants to meet, he wants to meet you? And uh, the story goes that Peterson's classic response was, who's Bono? (laughs) Which, um, to me, says a lot about um, his personality and his character that you kind of capture through his writings. Um, I'm not surprised that he would say, who's Bono? Uh, because he lived his life quietly, he lived his life without fanfare, and he certainly wasn't interested in in popular things. Um, this story uh, it can either be corroborated or debunked by my colleague David Taylor, um, who has uh, first hand relationships with with both of these people, both Bono as well as uh, Peterson, and um, uh, he can tell you. Um, more about this story, (laughs) about the verity or not. Um, Today, what I'd like to talk about is um, uh, not so much Tarshish and Nineveh. We talked about that. I'm going to come back to Nineveh, um, but today I'd like to pause here um, and talk about the fish, the fish in the story, because between Tarshish and Nineveh is the fish. And I talked about uh, at the last podcast how Um, uh, this lead word of arise is paralleled by the lead word of going down, of how Jonah is repeatedly sinking deeper and deeper, um, sinking into his rock bottom, so to speak. Uh, But I, I alluded to how he was not yet done descending, Um, There was one more place to descend. You see, see God will sometimes take us even deeper than we thought. And that that even deeper place that Jonah had to go was within the the stomach of the fish. And that's what we're going to camp on a little bit today and talk about the fish. And uh, you'll see why um, this is relevant. This is not so much a scientific exploration as much as it is an exploration into asceticism. Because it's within the belly of the fish that God finally had Jonah's attention. As is the case many times with rock-bottom kind of stories. It's there where I had nowhere to go except for up. And it's there where God got a hold of me. It's there where I developed true spirituality. And that's really where we're going with this. But um, let's look at that. Chapter 1, verse 17, it says, The Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now we could we could so much there we could talk about three days and three nights. And yet again, this this uh, another lead word point, God appoints all throughout the book of Jonah. Um, but um, let's just kind of pause here and you've noticed that I've used the word fish, not whale as as some have understood it. Uh, This is indeed one of the most famous stories from the Bible. You talk about Bible stories and people who are not versed in Scripture. They'll talk about Jonah and the whale, um, and they'll talk about how this is most implausible. Some commentators even uh, uh, accuse this verse of ruining the narrative, that were it not for this one verse that Jonah got swallowed by a fish, um, this would have been a plausible story. Uh, which, by the way, is bad hermeneutics. I'll just say it straight right there. The question of could Jonah have fit within to the stomach of the fish or whether this was a whale or exactly what kind of fish could it have been is chasing the wrong rabbit down the wrong rabbit hole. Um, uh, Hermeneutics is an important study of um, how we interpret this and to ask that kind of question is already Um, to ask the wrong question. I think there are much more fruitful interpretive outcomes than scientific verification. Um, I think uh, that the payload of this is not so much in trying to determine what what kind of fish this was, but rather in the message of Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Once again, this rock-bottom message, I think, is the real takeaway. what's being communicated here, how it's being communicated, the form of which it's being communicated. So listen to the word of the Lord. As I read from Jonah chapter 2 verses 1 to 9, you will hear, um, you'll hear several things. Um, and I'd like to call your attention not just to the, the words, but the form, um, to the way it's presented. So listen to the word of the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away... I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Um So much to talk about there, Um, those powerful words, even right up to the very end, Jonah is finally going to honor his vows. God has gripped him in the utter depths of all depths. He can't sink any lower than this. He has hit his rock bottom, and there God has a hold of him, and God shapes his spirituality. You see, the significance of this passage is, first of all, that Jonah prayed, I think it's significant that Jonah prayed because we often do not turn to prayer and the turbulence of our lives. I understand we as Christians, we believe in prayer, but the thing is um, when we are in the midst of stress, turbulence, um, turmoil, if anything, if we're praying, oftentimes these are Hail Mary type of prayers. We shoot out, um, save me, Jesus, or help me. Um, at the times when I was afraid of flying in the past and that plane rattled with me inside of it, all I could do was pray, help me, Jesus, help me, help me, help me, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. That's the extent of prayer. That Jonah had the presence of mind to say all of these things is significant. But I find it more important, not so much that Jonah prayed, but rather what he prayed in particular. That is to say, what words did he use? Now, you might wonder, what do you mean what words? We just pray. And especially if you come the same background as me, um, praying extemporaneously or improvised prayer or just, you know, as we used to say it in church back in the day, just be honest and speak your heart and just talk to Jesus you know, the thing is, I grew up praying like that. Um, I remember there was a point in my life where I had cultivated a prayer life um, already. That's kind of a, a suspect statement. But I had cultivated an, a prayer life that was one to two hours every night. And this was on top of a full-time job and, um, and just just a, a busy life. I still managed to get on my knees every night and pray for one, sometimes two hours. And um, around that time, and I've shared about this elsewhere, um, I experienced a profound depression. And um, I found that I could no longer pray because as much as I opened my mouth and I tried to just speak my heart and be honest with God, I actually found that I was praying myself sick, if you can understand that. Um, Kind of like Jonah plunging down into darkness, I found that as I began to open my mouth and just use the words from my heart extemporaneously, just saying my honest words, that I was getting deeper and deeper into depression. And it felt horrible. And so I found that my prayer life, quote-unquote, which was one, even two hours daily a night, went down to zero, went down to zero. Not that I lost my faith or anything like that. My faith was stronger than ever. Uh, rather, I just, I, I just found myself talking myself sick whenever I prayed. And uh, many years later, I read about this phenomenon, um, and it, it really came full circle for me in a C.S. Lewis book, Um, There's a book by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces. It is his last novel and, in my opinion, his greatest, his greatest work. We've all heard about um, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I think um, Till We Have Faces is his most mature and beautiful and profound work. I've, I've wept reading that book. I'll just say I've wept. At any case, there is a point where the protagonist finally realizes that her prayers were were rather meaningless. And um, she says, uh, and I quote, only words, words to be led out in battle against other words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer, because why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? Why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? No, never mind that it talks about gods in the plural. You'll have to read the bo- uh, you'll, you'll have to read that book to understand the context. It's it, it's a Christian message um, housed within um, Greek mythology, um, very powerful. But that sentence really brought it home for me because the babble that I thought I meant. From me speaking my heart to Jesus finally became bankrupt. I could no longer find the words to express deep, hard things. Um, goodness, I needed counseling to understand what I was going through, and the babbling just made served to make me even more sick. Um, Bonifer talks about this as well on page forty-seven of his Life Together. He says Christian prayer takes its stand on the solid ground of the revealed word and has nothing to do with vague, self-seeking vagaries. You know, sometimes um, prayer that just comes from the heart, and and understand, I'm not completely debunking it. Um, We need to be honest in our prayers. But sometimes, you know, you've been in the prayer meeting where it's like, Jesus just... Like, you know, like, just, just, like, fill me and, like, just, you know, just, like, just, just give me everything. Like, God, just, just fill me and, like, just, just, like, completely, and, and I just want to pull my hair out. Um, That's, that's prayer. It's honest, but it it's not necessarily deep. It's coming from the heart, but it's grounded in nothing. You see, the significance of Jonah's prayer here, when you look at it, carefully. First thing, you'll notice that there are a ton of footnotes. All of these footnotes. Why are there so many footnotes to these nine verses of Jonah's prayer? Ah, you'll see that there are cross-references. References References to other places, particularly the Psalms. Verse 3, all your breakers and billows passed over me. Psalm 42, verse 7. Verse 7, I was fainting away. That comes from Psalm 142.3. Verse 6, you've brought up my life from the pit. That comes from Psalm 30. Salvation is from the Lord. We've seen that in Psalm 3, as well as other places. In other words, Jonah's prayer is not original, nor is it improvised. What we have in Jonah's prayer is actually copied. These are set prayers, form prayers. One way to put it is Jonah and the blue whales, they're a cover band. They write no original material. And so these prayers, which have been previously mentioned elsewhere, particularly from the Psalms, These words comprise the honesty that Jonah is seeking after. You see, many people will consider prayer as this extemporaneous, extemporary prayer. It's spontaneous, improvised. And if we use form prayer or prayers that are set or derivative or copied, we'll say that's Catholic or that's, that's too high church and, you know, we're the real church. We speak from the heart. Why is it that we dismiss certain types of prayer as less authentic because the words have been used elsewhere? Why do we toss this out and say the only true type of prayer are the words that come up from my own heart, and therefore those are the most honest prayers? Why do we, why do we say that? Because the thing is, the words that come from my own heart, um, I could babble all kinds of things, but it can be completely inadequate in expressing the depths of what I'm truly fearing, feeling. So there, I think, is a connection here that's being made between prayer and Scripture, in particular Lectio Divina, that Jonah knows his Bible, in particular the Psalms. And in moments of turbulence, somewhere maybe over the Rocky Mountains, en route from New York to Seattle, Instead of saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Jonah is praying, salvation is from the Lord. Your breakers and billows pass over me. I was fainting away. You brought up my life from the pit. Salvation is of the Lord. You know, I can tell you that that practice of set prayers memorized psalms. In fact, before I boarded the plane, I would prepare myself with a psalm, and I would have it on the tip of my tongue, and it helped tremendously to this point today where I've learned to let go of control, and quite frankly, I enjoy flying. I don't fear it anymore. So this connection between prayer and Scripture, prayer, particularly Lectio Divina, meditating on Scripture, I think shows us that there is a different way to pray, that it's not just that we pray, but in particular what we pray, knowing the words, how to find the words. It is in this imprisonment within the belly of the fish that Jonah finally finds his spirituality. He finds this thing called eschesis, And Peterson talks about this at-depth, ascesis, uh, from which we derive the word asceticism. Jonah identifies his spiritual practice from the rock-bottom experience of the interior of the fish. New ways to pray, new ways to read, new ways to practice. Friends, I hope that your experience in seminary will be just that, that your experience will not be, oh, I've strengthened my prayer muscle and I've gone from one to two hours a night now. I pray three hours every night and therefore I'm more holy than all the other students. My, my hope is that it, it, you will learn new ways to pray, that your prayers will not just become a mile wide and an inch deep, but that they will deepen, that the expression of them, how you pray, that your eschesis would evolve it would become more mature. You know, on top of my nightly prayers, you know, back then, all those years ago, you know, I, I boasted in my, in my heart that I, I pray so much at night, and then all throughout the day, I practice the presence of God. And you may have uh, heard of this little book by Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. I mean, for crying out loud, what does that look like, especially if you have a full-time job? Maybe it was easy for Brother Lawrence. I mean, he worked—he worked, he worked um, uh, in a monastery. He lived in a monastery and uh, worked a very quiet job. And, and perhaps it was easy for him to hum hymns under his breath and, and just keep his mind on God. And but for many of us in the real world, what does prayer look like? Especially unceasing prayer, as it's spoken of in First Thessalonians chapter five: "Pray without ceasing." What does that really look like? Peterson talks about this, and um, you can see this in particular um, on page 107. Peterson presents this life, this ascetic life that begins with corporate worship that is peppered throughout the day with daily prayers from the Psalms. And then his practicing the the presence of God are these recollected prayers all throughout the day. Now, this is, this is a, a kind of rule of life, and we're going to talk about this. In fact, um, for all of my students, I'm going to have you come up with your own rule of life for seminary in particular. Um, what does a practice of spirituality look like for me? If you are spending your nights or your mornings in prayer, great, incorporate that. Please don't, don't misunderstand that I'm, I'm saying that you shouldn't pray the old way anymore. I'm just trying to add more tools to your toolkit to, to depth, to bring depth to how you pray, um, to the language of prayer. For me, um, my rule of life looks something like this: I have corporate worship, that's on Sundays. I, I worship with the community, and then from uh, Monday to f- Saturday throughout the week, um, I I do um, the divine hours. Um, these are. Uh, prayers at set times of the day. Um, there's the, the morning, midday, um, the uh, afternoon, it's called the Vespers, and occasionally the Compline. Um, and I use Phyllis Tickle's The Divine Hours, um, which are set prayers. And I will use those set prayers, much like Jonah used the Psalms. I'll just pray what's there. Um, but then I will also improvise and, and pray from the heart. So I'll In the midst of set prayers, I'm also speaking from the heart. Um, This is how I pray throughout the week. I also use something called the examine, which um, my students, you will be learning about or you've learned about the examine. Um, And then my practice of the presence of God all throughout the day is recollected psalms. Like I'll keep um, the Holy Bible open on my phone and um, I'll keep psalms uh, one or two psalms open right in front of me so that I can actively recollect it all throughout. And that is a rule of life for me. That's what a practice of ascesis looks for, looks like for me, which indeed I've had to learn from my own belly of the fish. So hopefully it won't come under such difficult circumstances for you. Hopefully you will begin to find um, a rule of life for yourself in seminary, an ascesis That works for you and uh, that is not something that is um, uh, goes against the grain and becomes difficult to keep up but that goes with the flow of your life Um, i look forward to hearing how you are practicing your spirituality thanks for listening to this podcast if you'd like to learn more Visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O I K O N O M I K S.com.